I would do anything for love. But I won't do anything for love. Did he repeat it? He did. Anything for love. But I I won't do that. My mom said, I don't know who he is. And I was like, I would do anything for love. But I won't do that. Sing, Karen. She was like, oh, I think I've heard that. I was like, I'm certain that you have. I feel like <laughs> we should have a like revision of his album and call it Vegan Loaf or Veggie Loaf. And you can be the lead artist. You sounded pretty I'm good. sorry. My mom used to make this lima bean loaf back when she was in her vegetarian <laughs> stage back in the earth. None of those words belong in the same sentence. Lima <laughs> bean loaf. I know, but then she also took the um, all the good flavors out of it. So, Wait a minute. What, what good flavors? flavors? <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyway, I said yesterday to some... And texted my brother yesterday and said, Meatloaf died. And Jeff said, But Lima Bean Loaf still exists. There is no justice in this world. <laughs> That's going to be your name is Lima Bean Loaf. That oh, is Lima Bean Loaf Rick. <laughs> my God. What is up, good people? Welcome back to Holy Shit Pod, a holy, irreverent, irreverently holy conversation about spirituality, culture, and the world. I'm the host who goes first, Brandon T. Maxwell. I'm the host that goes second, KD Ricks. Lima Bean Loaf. <laughs> And I'm the first post who goes last. Damn right. Damn, that was good. Hey, you're not talking in your mic, so can't nobody hear what you say. I just turned it down because <laughs> I think I turned it up anyway. And I'm the first host. Blah. And I'm the first host who goes last. Sam White. You know they say you got to save the best for last. You ever heard of that? I'm going to put the first hoe. First hoe? And then, you know, they save the best for last. <laughs> that is totally what's happening, my friend. Wow. The last shall be first. We talking about Brandon's college days now? Oh, I wasn't a hoe in college. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Today is a full-length episode of church announcements for the good of the congregation. So let's just get right into it. Give us another song. Anything for love. Oh, come on. The same one? She just sung it. And it was horrible. I know. Why do I have to <laughs> sing it again? Because that was rehearsal. We are now in the service. Oh. I would do anything for love. Come on. Sing it from your shondo. <laughs> sing it. Come on. I have to repeat it? Yes. Come on. This is too many times singing. So, come, come, come from your here. Come from your shondo. <laughs> I would do anything for love. You got it. A little bit more. Anything for love, but I won't do that. Hold it out. But I won't do. Come on. Give it to me like meat love. But I won't do that. Oh, yes. Come on, Katie. I, I kind of felt that. I'm a choir director. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, good morning. Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for all the saints and the ain'ts. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Mm -hmm. That's holy when you go and. Y'all, I don't even know where to begin because today I'm just a little bit sad. I feel like people just keep on giving up the ghost in 2022. I don't know if it's the pandemic or what, but Thich Nhat Hanh died. It's thick. It ain't thick. It is Thich Nhat Hanh. It's thick. Tick, not Han. He died. Who that? Well, Katie should tell us because I feel like this is white people's savior. Tell us who he is. That's not entirely true, <laughs> but he's an influential Zen master who. Wait, he a rapper? People call the father of mindfulness. My bad. <laughs> you said Zen master. I was like, shit, he's spitting bars. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, you're proving my point. Sam is like, who the fuck is Tick, not Han? <laughs> Seriously, you don't know who he is? I know. He knows. He went to seminary. One of the progressive ones where they actually read things other than the Bible. 
<laughs> he died at the temple where he lived in Vietnam, which is a place that he was exiled from in the 1960s because he opposed the war that was in Vietnam. And the day Thich Nhat Hanh died, Bernice King posted a picture of her father, Martin Luther King, with Thich Nhat Hanh in the 1960s. And she celebrated his life and his global influence for peace. And I didn't know this, but King actually nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for a Nobel Prize and called him an apostle peace. of peace and nonviolence. How old was Thich Nhat Hanh? 95. So let you tell it, it was time for him to die because you like to kill everybody off. No, I like to kill 90-year-olds off. I mean, I don't like to kill them off, but they're going to die. It's inevitable. James Earl Jones going soon. Oh, gosh. Don't speak that stuff into the air. He's 91. How much longer do you think he's going to be here? The Bible say you only promise four score and ten. Was that the? Is it, does it say four score? Three score and ten. But what was it? Four score and seven years ago. Our fathers fought. Okay. Anyways, keep going. You didn't switch to the Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> what is it, the Battle of Gettysburg? Address. The Gettysburg Address. <laughs> four score and seven years uh-huh. ago. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty. I need you not to preach it. And dedicated <laughs> to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, I want to put a pin right there and I want to say, see, the founding fathers were racist. And yes, I'm saying fathers were hella patriarchal and hella racist. So they didn't believe what they were writing, but the Holy Ghost within them made something rise up that we could all speak to in the future. They believe what they was writing about themselves, but what I'm telling you today... They just didn't believe that you Negroes was ever going to be smart enough to appeal to it. They said, don't you trust them new niggas over there. (laughs) Don't you trust them new niggas over there. They'll be fussing and be fighting. Okay, I'm done. We should literally just start preaching random things from the Constitution. Did you actually do that by by heart? Yes. He did that in a play somewhere. There's a reason he remembers that. Yeah, I was like... What play did you have to recite that in? Yeah, we did that in fifth grade or sixth grade, I think. In seventh grade, I had to learn the uh, preamble to the Constitution, but never the Gettysburg Address. Yeah, we had to learn no Gettys. That's some Tennessee shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really know Thich Nhat Hanh that well. He's somebody that I read about him, heard of him in seminary. He was never really a significant part of my own spirituality. And I think that's in part because I was raised in these conservative Southern Baptist circles. And God forbid we read anything about a Buddhist monk and call it sacred or holy or meaningful for our faith. But uh, one of my really good friends loved Thich Nhat Hanh. So when I heard that Thich Nhat Hanh died, and we are definitely setting the record for the most times Thich Nhat Hanh's name will be said on a single podcast episode. Guinness, (laughs) hit us up. Um, And so I text him to say, hey, your boy died. And I just call him T&H because it's too many letters. He said, I mean, he was so spiritual advanced that I know he would tell us it's okay to feel sad, but not to get attached to it. Because actually, there is no individual self and that I am a part of all of you and we are all a part of one another. I said, that's the most tick not Han thing that you could have ever said. So rest in peace, rest in power, rest in Nirvana, Thich Nhat Hanh. We're grateful for your life and your legacy. Yes. You know who else gave up the ghost that has really, really hit me like really deep in my soul? Andre, Leon, Tally. Last Tuesday, news broke that fashion icon, pioneer, and I would say civil rights leader in his own regard, Andre Leon Talley, passed away at the ripe age of 73. He grew up in Durham in the era of Jim Crow and rose to higher heights of the international fashion world. So I got to know Andre Leon Talley in 2017. My partner likes to call me a baby gay because, again, I was raised in the conservative Southern Baptist religious South, and I was taught to be afraid of anything that wasn't like Jesus, 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 especially if it was 
was it wasn't the white one. And so I watched the gospel according to Andre and fell in love with Andre because he isn't someone that you're going to hear out there making speeches about social justice, but he's somebody who took up space. He's a black gay man raised in the South who became the first black editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. He was defining what it meant to be beautiful. He was placing people like Naomi Campbell in the center of the magazine and making Black people subjects and redefining what had so long been and still is white Western standards of beauty. And so he really um, was progressive in his own right. And as a Black gay man in America, we don't have many examples of Black gay men taking up space publicly and being unapologetically and unfearfully themselves. And so that one really did hit me close to home. I mean, so if you have ever seen or heard of Andre Talley, you would know that in addition to being a black gay man, he's someone who wouldn't fit Western standards of beauty. Mm -hmm. He was a larger human being, right? When I say took up space, I don't mean that jokingly. He literally took up space and he took his black, gay, large body and dressed it and adorned it, if you will, Mm -hmm. in the most beautiful garments and was fully and unapologetically himself. And I think watching the gospel according to Andre, if you haven't watched it, go watch it now. I don't know what streaming service it's on. It may be on Amazon Prime, Netflix, or one of those other people, but none of those people are paying us to say those things. I think it may be on HBO Max. So go watch it now and learn about this icon and how he impacted not only my life, but also your life because he's impacted all of us, whether or not we're really able to acknowledge it. So I know we have other church announcements and we definitely have to talk about Mike Todd and Spitgate 22. And we're going to get to that later on in the episode, but I do want to tarry here a little bit longer. So let's get back to this thing about him not being a civil rights icon in the same way that we saw these public vocal civil rights leaders. We had a listener write back to kind of say, I don't get what you mean about Sidney Poitier kind of being this progressive liberal person who was Hmm. pushing an agenda. Because by some estimations, you could say that Sidney Poitier was resistant to certain types of causes, right? He didn't take on roles that depicted Black people in particular lights. He was very intentional about the roles that he selected. But I was listening to a podcast recently, and it was highlighting better than I could the fact that Sidney Poitier's life, if you look at the movies that he was in and you look at the years they were released, it correlates directly with the civil rights movement. Right. And the roles that he was taking correlate with what was happening in the movement. And when there was progress made for Sidney Poitier, there was progress being made in the movement. And when uh, he took on different roles where he was a little bit less respectful, there were also things that were shifting in the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King's tone and how he was engaging in the struggle. So we can't always just say that Martin Luther King, God bless his heart, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson really God bless his heart. He going next. He soon, soon and very soon. He is going to see the king. Uh, Farrakhan going after him, but I'm not trying to wish them to death, but I'm just saying those folks aren't the only civil rights leaders. There's also all these folks who stood in the gap and taken up space so that we can live in a different way today. Wait, so this listener was problematizing or challenging the notion that he was a civil rights leader? I wouldn't say challenge the notion that he was a civil rights leader, just highlighting the fact that his story is nuanced. Right. Like, if you tell his story honestly, there are certain roles that he refused to take in the earliest days of his career because he wanted to make sure he was depicting a certain type of Black person. Some might even say respectable images of Black people. Correct. He didn't want to just fit inside of the standard roles. And so there was an intentionality with how he navigated that. And I think what his life and Andre Leon Talley's life's highlight is, there's not one way to be Black. Correct. And there's not one way to struggle for justice. We all got to get in where we fit in and do the best that we can with what we've got, unless you're Clarence Thomas, and then just sit the fuck down. You can go next. I totally agree with that. But I do want to say this about Sidney because I felt like the fact that the, his awareness that he was one of the only ones getting these roles on films meant that I'm not going to let this be the standard for what the rest of the world sees. Or You know what I'm saying? Like this, this ain't all you're going to see of black people. Yeah. 
So no, I'm not going to play this role yeah. because you're not going to use me right. to pigeonhole and identify my entire people. I think it was less about him, just himself and about, no, now that I've gotten here and I'm the only black person in these roles, no, I'm not doing that. Right. And I think, Brandon, the way that you just described Andre, I think it was something similar, like this awareness of who you are. And, and like you say, how you take up that space in a room, whether physically or otherwise. And folks like Andre, folks like Sydney, they were aware. And that awareness makes them civil rights leaders in their own right, trailblazers. And they held the door open for so many other people because of the stand that they took. No, they weren't marching. No, they weren't doing these things. But uh, some of these other things that we identify as like justice actions or, you know, they weren't Jesse's. Jacksons, but they were certainly um, movement leaders. Absolutely. And I don't want to get to a place where I'm talking about romanticizing or making things nostalgic that don't need to be. Like Andre Leon Talley, for me, is one of the first people that helped me to say, I can bring myself to respect someone who has to choose a silent strategy, mm-hmm. right? So like for me, when I came out, it was important for me to come out big and to come out hard and to come out vocally so that no one could pin me into a straight corner or try to act like they didn't know who I was or who I am. Andre Leon Talley navigated that in a very different way. And because of the way that he navigated that and the times that he chose to be silent, right? And the ways he chose to be black and gay, which is he didn't come out. He was just out. Mm -hmm. You know, some people don't have closets. They got glass walls around them and everybody knows, but nobody wants to talk about it until way later in life. And so I think I just respect him so much for how he carried himself and the example that he set for taking up space and just being your black, gay, proud self, no matter who has something to say about it. Yeah, and I think it takes all of those people. Um, It took Sidney Poitier, it took Martin Luther King. Like, not everybody's marching on the street. Name a white person. I'm sorry? It took you were saying who all it took. I wanted you to name a white person. Oh, I'm sorry. I was I was relating it to the conversation. He was being a mess. I mean, just like Andre was in the fashion industry and he set roads for other people. Again, we talk about that in terms of heroes. We don't need to glorify the crap that they went through, but his work set the way for other people behind him. Pushing ahead just a little bit more in these church announcements, and then we're going to take a quick break. We have two more church announcements on this segment, and then we'll go into the Word of Pod and talk about the Democrats and not doing anything at all. Wait, who else died? We can talk about this for all day. All democracy. And democracy. <laughs> you know who else died? Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou. She didn't die this year. She didn't, <laughs> but <laughs> she has been put on a quarter. Did y'all know that Maya Angelou is now on the quarter? They put a stripper on the quarter? What? For the record, I think there was a time in my life where I would have said, let's not call Maya Angelou a stripper. Let's not talk about the days when she was a prostitute because I am I was very much about like black respectability politics and you don't do that when people die. You honor the dead and you talk about the good parts of their history. But my 2022 self is like, yeah, Maya Angelou, because of the socioeconomic conditions of the world in which she lived and the racism and the gender injustice, and the sexism had to make certain choices that you and I on this podcast don't have to make just to get by. And it was that experience, or at least in part, mm-hmm. that made her write some of the most beautiful poetry that we have mm-hmm. available to us today. And so, yeah, they put a stripper on a quarter. And they also have a bunch of racist assholes <laughs> on every other dollar building coin that we have. Hello, somebody. Hello, somebody. And where are my Tubmans? Where are my Tubmans? That's what I want. I want my Tubmans. Yes. I know. That's what I was wondering when I saw it. They still voting on that $10 bill. It better happen. So y'all can put Maya on there, but you can't put Harriet on my 20s? 
Oh, it's on a 20? She going, she replacing Jackson's slave on and ass. <sighs> so any other church announcements before we get to the break? Yeah, I don't know if y'all have heard about this, but high school students in major U.S. cities like New York City, Boston, Chicago, Seattle are walking out of school. Why? It's not because the food's bad. It's not because all the bathrooms in their schools are closed because of that TikTok trend where everybody was destroying that, but because school districts are not protecting them from COVID-19. The Omicron variant has brought a special level of chaos into the classroom and teens say their schools aren't doing enough to protect them. So hmm. that mask policies aren't enforced. They're not told when they've been exposed to COVID, but they know they have been because half the kids in their class are gone. So they're walking out and they've, they're making demands and their demands are at least tell us when I've been exposed. So like minimal contact tracing, enforce the mask mandate and provide KN95s or N95 masks to the students because they're just not safe. And instead of having other people talk about them, they're taking it to the streets and talking about it themselves. I support this 175%. As a person who was formerly a higher education administrator in a previous life, I've always said that it is students who will make educational institutions better. Yep. At the end of the day, schools need your money, they need your tax dollars, they need your support. And everybody who's a part of those institutions has one singular focus. And that's not educating you, and it's not making you safe, and it's not making you better. It's sustaining the institution. And so students are the greatest hope for education. High school students are really being more vocal right now what's going on in the world. Like, after the Parkland shooting in Florida, they were speaking about gun control and, and in Washington and all over the country. And so I think some teenagers are finally hearing that reality that they have a voice and they will have power even more than adults who are talking about things. Absolutely. Uh, history will not be kind to these uh, folks who are in the middle of a pandemic, you know, insisting that we don't have masks, that people don't take vaccines, that, you know, like it's just it enrages me that this is what's going on. It is quite horrible. I would say students keep taking a stand, keep walking out. You actually are learning one of the most valuable lessons that you could ever learn that may or may not be included in your textbooks, depending on whether or not your textbooks came from the state of Texas. And on that note, let's take a quick break and then get right back into it. When we come back, we're going to take a stop by Katie's COVID Corner and we got to talk about Spitgate 2022. You know, Mike Spit Play Todd. And we'll also take a little bit of time to talk about why Democrats have struggled to pass voting rights legislation or any other legislation that could help them in the midterm elections. We will be right back after this. Brenda, how you call me at 859? We wasn't supposed to start tonight. Say those words back over again so you can hear them. I said, Brenda, how did you call me at 859? We wasn't supposed to start tonight. You called me earlier. Why? To tell me I was late. To tell you that she was asleep. <laughs> this is good. This is a great interlude. <laughs> and I pushed it back to 915 and I said, okay, I called you once. Oh. And it felt like you rolled over and sent me to voicemail because I was counting the number of rings. Mm -hmm. I didn't. My phone's always on silent. So it's on silent when I sleep. So I never heard of ring. Trash. Did y'all hear that they said if you got the booster that you pretty much good? But I thought initially they said the booster didn't offer a lot of protection against Omicron. So they changed that? They revised it? Studies show booster shots significantly improve protection against Omicron. The new studies offer more evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines are standing up to the Omicron variant, at least among people who have gotten booster shots. I'm going to still be masked and socially distanced and washing my hands and staying away from people because oh, as we've talked about for almost two years now... 
all that stuff changes week to week and hour and hour. And hours and, and hours. Weeks and Yours weeks and months and months. I could do this for hours. Listen, I, I had a sore throat the other day and right after I had a runny nose, I had a sore throat and I was like, I'm a crime? Is that you, player? Did you get tested? I actually took a uh, at-home test that night that I emailed y'all to say I wasn't coming to work. So it continues to be the case that mRNA vaccines are the most effective. Three shots of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were about 67% effective against Omicron-related symptomatic disease compared with unvaccinated people. That's it? Two doses, however, offered no significant protection against Omicron, wow. the researchers found. Dang. Can you send me that article? I need to send that to somebody. Yeah. We're going to be taking these damn shots for the rest of our lives. So the lesson is clear. The lesson is true. Get boosted unless you have a medical reason not to. Get vaccinated, people, and get boosted. You know how people acted when HIV first came on the scene? Mm -hmm. And it was like, we don't want people in our space. We don't want people around. We don't want people... Because, you know, this virus was so dangerous and unknown. and But now COVID, it's like, don't tell me to wear a mask. I'll cough on you, you know, this type of thing. And people are dying. Like, this is crazy. We need to have that conversation. No, I think that's actually a worthwhile conversation to have, Sam, because ultimately what I've had to come to realize is that there is a very strong link between COVID-19 and HIV. The reason that we have been able to so effectively navigate this pandemic is because of years and years and years and hours and hours and hours of research around how we treat, prevent, and mitigate the risk of HIV. Yep. There's a lot of work being done, and if we aren't intentional about linking it to other healthcare concerns like HIV and AIDS, we're going to miss an opportunity here. Even just the normalcy of saying what your status is, positive, negative, mm -hmm. testing at mm -hmm. home, mm -hmm. testing at the uh, drugstore, testing before you get on the plane. Right. I was talking about more so my, my outrage with how people treated folks early um, when we didn't know much about HIV and we were so afraid of it that we wanted to take all these precautions, right? Yep. Um, yep. Even to the point of exclusion of people from certain things, you know, magic was HIV positive and people were so concerned that what, what happens, you know, can I get it mm -hmm. if he's around? Like there was this whole thing um, from, from folks. And now we're in a space where people are like, COVID's not real. And to me, I think it has, to ha it has something to do with the folks who were getting HIV early on that we knew about. I mean, it was called GRID. Gay-related immunodeficiency. And so it, it was easy to marginalize those folks and say, this is, oh, that's what, no, it's their lifestyle. Now we have an actual pandemic and people aren't as concerned. And so I'm talking about the, the, the homophobia, the, all of the stuff that underlies all of the, this reality of the different responses between something like AIDS, which is also a virus, and something like COVID. Now, imagine if it was only like gay people who were getting COVID initially. Mm -hmm. It would be very different. Oh, it would be very different. I remember I was practice, basketball practice was beginning the day at the moment that I found out that um, Magic Johnson had HIV and A, or HIV. And so um, that was, he was the first person that we weren't thinking was a queer person that had it. And while, I wasn't stigmatizing gay people who are getting it in the 80s. That really shifted the conversation because everybody loves Magic Johnson. I think we're still having the same exact conversation. I think it's all part of the same sort of concern issue. Right. And it's all a response to an interlocked system of oppression that tells us to value some people more than others. The reason that we have people saying that COVID isn't real, I don't care about COVID, is because in the earliest days, who was it? 
that was dying at the most alarming rates. If you look at the rates of death, it is still black and brown people, poor people who are dying at the highest rates. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I don't have to care about a disease if it's just a bunch of niggas dying. I don't have to care about a disease if it's a bunch of gay people dying, black gay people dying. Even with HIV and AIDS, you still have this sort of racial segmentation wherein white populations are more quickly prescribed drugs like PrEP. If you're a white upper middle class gay man, they're going to tell you about PrEP immediately. Are you on PrEP? Do you want some PrEP? Whereas if you're a black gay man in the South and in other regions in the country, you got to beg them to talk to you about PrEP. They're not going to automatically do that as a default. I mean, it's so convoluted and multifaceted because we have to start teaching black folks how to advocate for themselves in terms of their health care. And we also got to teach folks how to destigmatize certain types of health and destigmatize races of people and make sure that you're providing equitable and consistent care, regardless of whether it's an HMO or a PPO or whatever your perceptions are of the individuals coming into your office. So that was a nice little unplanned excursus. Thanks for that, Sam, and guiding us down that path. Now it's time to take a hard right turn or maybe a hard left turn. Either way, we turn it really hard because we got to talk about that thing that happened with the saliva, the mucus, and the so-called sermon. So here it goes. So many of you have already written in to tell us about Mike Spit Play Todd. <laughs> Last Sunday, a video clip emerged of this human who calls himself a pastor. Somebody else describe what happened because it's too much for my spirit. I'm going to describe it. And I have a, 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 a an opinion about it. Y'all might be surprised. So Mike Todd was preaching about blind Bartimaeus. Do y'all know who that is? I read the word. I've read the Bible. He's the guy who was blind and Jesus spit on the ground, made clay, mm -hmm. and anointed his eyes with clay, and the guy was able to see. So Mike Todd was, was preaching from this passage and was trying to demonstrate the challenges to receiving God's vision. And he was trying to say, sometimes receiving God's vision Sometimes it can get nasty. And he spits in his hand and rubs the saliva over a guy's face in the church to say, sometimes it gets nasty. I'm going to push pause. You, you, you're not Because uh, you're not being descriptive enough. What Mike Todd did is he interrupted his thought mid-sentence and he hocked a loogie. It was a big spit. It was a... <laughs> and rubbed it in his hand. No, no. You're still going too fast. <laughs> he hocked a loogie, <sighs> held it in his hand, continued speaking, hawked a second loogie. Oh, I missed the second one. I didn't I watch the video because yeah, I couldn't. I only saw it at the end. Bit it in <laughs> his hand again. Ugh, <laughs> I'm getting sick just hearing you describe it. I'm talking about it was like a pool in this man's hand. <laughs> and then he took the spit, wiped it on both sides of the man's face. Yeah. If y'all think it's crazy that I said both sides. That man was shining, dripping. He literally, Ugh. he could have he put the spit in the man's forehead. He put it on both sides of his face. You know how when you hawk a loogie, it's a little bit thicker. You could see a strand of saliva going down the man's face. I can't. I didn't look that closely. From where he had wiped it on it. It's nasty. <laughs> Sam is the first person to actually text me about it. He told me that he was going to spit in my face. Tell him what you told me. I'm not going to do that. Well, actually, I will. So this is the thing. No, don't say it. No, no, no. Okay, I won't. Okay. Okay, I won't. I will say it. Unrelatedly. <laughs> I can't believe you was about Unrelatedly. Okay, anyway, unrelatedly. <laughs> unrelatedly, when I first opened the clip before I knew what was going to happen. So when Sam told me he was going to spit on my face, I had no idea what he was referencing. But then I got a series of additional text messages and inbox messages or DMs 
DMs. I'm trying. I feel like I'm getting older. Inbox messages. I got additional messages from people saying, "Have you seen this? Are y'all going to talk about it? I know you've heard about this." And so finally, I said, "Somebody just send me the clip." I, so I don't know who Mike Todd is. Never heard of him before. Apparently, he's a popular uh, black pastor. He's very popular. Where do you go to school? I'm nowhere. Oh, Oral Roberts or somewhere. I don't know. Somewhere that's not a real. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> he went. I don't know where he went. I'm leaving all of that in. <laughs> So I open the clip and and I immediately <laughs> see this man in a very well tailored suit. You got something against well tailored? I don't. Okay. But <laughs> the energy read very much uh, queer to me. Well, that's interesting. Usually he's not in a well tailored suit. But go ahead. This Sunday he was looking hella queer, is what I'm gonna say. And I'm not making any claims about uh, Mike Todd's sexual orientation. I don't know nothing. I ain't met him. I'm not interested in meeting him. I'm just saying that the energy red is queer. And before he even gets to the point where he's spinning in his hand, I'm like, well, who? What? Like, is this a pastor about to come out and tell these folks that this is his husband? I thought that this was like a, a coming out story. I was like, okay, great. We got another gay pastor. Then this man spits in his hand and I said, I know he is not about to do what I think he's about to do. Even though you knew because everybody had told you. <laughs> Because well, when, when people were saying that they were going to spit in his face, I thought he was going to literally just spit in the man's face. Like, okay. I was thinking like racism. Like, oh my God, a black man spit in another black man's face. So when he did it in his hand, that felt intimate to me. There, there's this thing called spit play in sex where some people like to be spit on when they're screwing for gay men and for people who can't get naturally wet where they need to be wet. In the absence of lube, oh, spit functions as a lubricant. I'm laughing because Katie's in the background saying, oh, God. But all of this read as extremely sexual to me is what I'm trying to highlight. I'm, I'm going to cut straight to the chase. I ain't going to let nobody spit on me in public who ain't spit on me in private. So are you saying that the the guy who was the demonstrator I'm, been spit mm -hmm. on in private? I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm not Gonna let nobody spit on me in public in front of God and everybody who ain't spit on me in private. So mine's a little different. To me, spitting is it's just like the ultimate level of disrespect. And hands would have been thrown at Todd that day. I I I have to assume that they that the 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 person who was doing this demonstration with him knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to assume that they had a conversation before, not the sexual nature before. That I, I get what you're saying. I'm but saying I'm that to, they, maybe they, they had... Let me tell you what the conversation was. I'm not saying what I'm saying. I'm just saying what I'm saying. I think that somebody got carried away previously <laughs> and there was a little spit play and the other person said, I, I got you. I'm going to get you back. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that that's the case. Keep going. All I'm saying is... I'm not saying what I'm saying. All I'm saying is they would have been carrying me out the church in handcuffs mm -hmm. if somebody spit on me or took a handful of saliva and rubbed it in my face. <sighs> and I don't care. You could have told me, I'm going to do a demonstration. I just need you to be cool. As soon as you hawked that loogie and you made a motion toward any part of my body. In my face. Your ass is grass. So this is the thing, though. But this is why I'm confused because, to your point, the man clearly knew what was about to happen. Mm -hmm. How do you, as a pastor, preacher, whatever you want to call yourself, navigate a conversation where you say, hey, bro, <laughs> I got this illustration. <laughs> Can I spit on you? <laughs> Can I rub this spit all over your, your face. face. That sounded sexual. Because there's so many ways that this could have been illustrated and still driven that point home. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't rub saliva on the man's face. 
It was mud. It was clay. Somebody didn't read their words. Like, you could have brought mud in. You could have already had it mixed up. You could have pretended like you spit in the bucket and then rubbed the mud. Baked it. Like, but you literally spit a gallon of loogie in your hand and rubbed it on this. It was more of a quart, but yes, still a lot. (laughs) I mean, I could, I could, like, if Katie came to me and said, Brandon, I got a sermon illustration. Can I spit on you? I would say, bitch. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> that would be the first word. You, like, <laughs> <laughs> you can rest assured that is the last thing I would ever do. So I think my first thing that I want to push a little bit further is what the hell is happening in our churches wherein we allow our religious leaders to spit on someone in the pulpit and call it a sermon illustration. There are people literally defending... In a pandemic. No, let's not even talk about COVID-19. In a pandemic. He, he felt like he could do this mm-hmm. without any consequence or repercussion and then apologize for it, not because he's actually sorry, but because he got caught, because I don't know if everyone knows this, another video surfaced where he had previously done the exact same thing in a different service which is why I call him Spit Play Todd. You like to spit on people. You're, you're recycling this sermon within the same two years and spitting on people in public? I think that there's a lot of ego involved in that. And I think that that is not a good example of pastoral authority, pastoral leadership. It's not an example of what it means to be human. And that's not pointing anybody to Jesus. I'm, I don't know. I think there's a lot of ego in it because what makes you think it's okay? Because to me, on some level, it's dehumanizing for you to rub your spit in someone's face, even if it's an illustration. At what point does something kick in and say, no, I shouldn't do this because this is a person up here. I joked with somebody and I said, this is, this is also proof why, if you want to make the case for why seminary might be important. <laughs> I won't imagine anybody that I, I went to seminary with or some of the other seminaries that I know about, they didn't tell us in seminary, don't rub spit in people's faces. Because they didn't think they had to. They didn't, they didn't think they had to, right? And the, one of the first things I did when I, when I learned about this was try to research what kind of education, training, what prepared this man for ministry. And basically, this is somebody who had a moment, a flash that went viral, that blew up, and everybody said, we're going to make him our pastor. He gonna, he's a great leader. And this is what you get when that happens. You get the Paula White Canes, and you get the Michael Todds, and you get people spitting in folks' faces. Well, I, I mean, I, you know that book, like everything I ever needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. You do not spit on people. That's one of those things that, you know, keep your hands to yourself, keep your spit to yourself. In fact, you don't spit while you're walking either. So that's A, but B is we are in the middle of a global pandemic and and that virus is transmitted by particles in one's spit. So he put this stuff all over this man's face and not only puts that other person at risk, but makes it something that seems right if, if for people who put their pastors on a pedestal. There's absolutely no reason. I've seen people defend Mike Todd, but goodness gracious, there's absolutely nothing. No defense. Mike, if you want to come on the podcast and talk about why you thought this was okay, uh, we welcome you. Come on. Virtually. Well, yeah, and don't spit on us. <laughs> We'll be doing this virtually. And I'll even and I will even be really nice, Mike. I will not judge you too harshly, but we're gonna have an honest conversation if you choose to come. Because my thing is your church is Transformation Church. It is located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Do you even know the history of where you were pastoring? Of all the places you're gonna do this in Tulsa? And then my last thing is this for anybody that's making a defense 
of this or trying to say, well, he apologized, let him alone, leave it alone. At the end of the day, that has more to do with you than it does with Mike Todd. Because while what Mike Todd did was nasty, what's even worse is the fact that there was a congregation full of people who saw it sat there and didn't get up because I would have got right up. I would have hollered, that's nasty and walked out and never come back through those doors. <laughs> that's nasty. He would have, he would have, he would have did it. I'm thinking about the video that I sent you. That, that bishop that was like, <laughs> I don't give I a don't damn give a about damn. protocol. <laughs> <laughs> There's people here who need the word. Don't put your hands on my shit. <laughs> But just in the same, and I'm not, I'm not making a correlation here too strongly, at least in the same way that we like to say that Donald Trump is this horrible figure in American history and one of the worst presidents of all time. That exceptionalizes Donald Trump in a way that does not take the historical context and history more seriously. At the end of the day, what Mike Todd did was disgusting and it was nasty and it was the worst choice ever. I've, I've looked because I'm really so in, interested in his educational background now because if it was a real nigga that was educated, he would be telling y'all every single degree that he. He has on every single bio web page, church website. It would be everywhere, including the honorary degrees. He would be Dr. Michael Todd if he had any educational background. And I can't find nothing about his education other than a, a reference to his high school. And I'm not an educational elitist. I believe that God can give somebody, anoint someone. I believe all of those things are true. And I believe that the same way that God gifts and anoints people to be medical practitioners, to be legal practitioners, and we send them off to be trained, when God gifts someone to be a religious practitioner, a religious leader, training is essential and it is necessary because you shouldn't be spitting on people. And this is the call to every seminary in the country. You need a new class that tell about sermon illustrations. If you want me to come in as an adjunct professor, you can pay me the little $3,600 and the course title will be We Do Not Spit on People. Alternatively, spit play is for the club, not the pulpit. Spit play is for the bedroom, not the pulpit. I was about to say, what club? <laughs> Y'all let me know if you want me to come and teach. Me, Katie, and Sam will come team teach it, but you got to pay us $3,600 each. We're not going to split it. Oh, yeah, I'm all in now. <laughs> Katie's like, yep, we don't spit on people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's not make excuses for our religious leaders. Let's hold them up to a higher standard. And what Mike Todd has done and our response to that is indicative of where we really are, I think, with the church right now. And the fact that we have these religious, so-called religious leaders, I might even say, who are doing things for the sake of YouTube streams, TikTok likes, or whatever the case may be, that have nothing to do with the actual message of Jesus or whatever God they claim to serve. So I actually need another break after all of that. Let's pause real quick, swallow our saliva, clean up these microphones, get the spit out of them so we don't have a Mike Todd incident on today's episode. We'll be right back after this with our last church announcement about Democrats voting rights legislation and a quick invitation to get you through the week. Try not to miss us too much. And we are back almost like we never left. Let's get right back into it. So for our last church announcement, which is also the word of pod for the people of pod, thanks be to pod. I don't want to say the Democrats are fucking it up because that narrative is not one that I think is helpful for the general public. Right. The reality is, is that since the conception of American so-called democracy, white folks who desire power have been eating away at the foundations of what was supposed to be a democratic country for the people, by the people. Right. And so I don't want to say now at this magic moment in history, the Democrats are somehow Joe Biden is somehow screwing it up. And let that be the narrative that we're putting out there. Because at the end of the day, when a basketball team, uh oh, sports reference, I'm going to do football because it's football season. When a football team loses a game, it's not football season. <laughs> 
it's almost a Super Bowl. It actually is basketball season. It's more basketball season. <laughs> it is basketball season. But the Super Bowl's coming up in like a week, right? I, I don't. <laughs> Back to the sports metaphor that I was unearthing there. No sports team, basketball, football, baseball, or otherwise, loses the game in the final seconds. When, when it gets to the point where we're sitting there like, oh my God, we about to lose. It's a tie. We need to make this field goal if we want to win. We got to make this three-point shot or this half-court shot to win. We can't blame it on the person who kicks the field goal and misses or the person who tries to throw the shot up from half-court and misses. Ultimately, the game was lost along the way. We still do blame those people, but yes, the game was lost along the way. Shit. He actually made a good sports reference and he knows what a field goal and a half-court shot is. And he's snapping his fingers. And with the sports reference because I had to perform heterosexuality for my safety for a very long time. And so I had to learn these things. First of all, gay people like sports too. Don't make it seem like it's just a, it's a heterosexual thing. Plenty. I mean, all the lesbians. I don't like them. I had to fake it in the barbershop because people always ask me questions. Last year, my barber was like, Brandy, you going down to Miami? Or whenever the Super was in Miami. I don't know when it was. And I said, no, what's happening in Miami? As far as I know, it's just a gay city and I go there to be naked on the beach. He's like, the Super Bowl. I was like, oh, <laughs> sports. <laughs> you didn't say the part about being naked on the beach, did you? No, that was that was internal dialogue. That was all oh. internal monologue. Because <laughs> I've heard you talk about barbershop. I didn't think that was a good thing to say. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm going to the barbershop with my nails painted, so they must know something. Anyways, so the Democrats are not fucking it up. And the Democrats are fucking it up. At the end of the day, we elected Joe Biden to the presidency because he was the only person who we thought could win against Donald Trump. Right. And he was, actually, technically. I mean, he de- that was the only thing he had to do. Like, that was his goal. That's what our goal was, was to get Trump out of office. He did that. Period. That was such a short-sighted goal. But we achieved that goal on the back of him making promises like doing something about voting rights, passing Build Back Better. And what we have is nothing. We literally have almost nothing to show for Joe Biden's presidency other than two very large spending budget reconciliation bills that did have a lot of things embedded within them that we're still not talking about and still not messaging in an effective manner. So for today's Word of Pot, we're talking about what's happening in the political world right now. We're going to also think about it theologically because that's what we do here. But at least we want to get the lay of the land about all the things that are happening. Um, That was a very long, meandering introduction with, with a lot of interruptions from Sam and Katie. And so I think, Sam, if you can give us the lay of the land because you are the one that wanted to talk about this primarily, I just have a lot of feelings because I'm checking back into politics. I have many thoughts. So there's two different pieces of legislation, Freedom to Vote and the John R. Lewis Act. These things failed uh, in the Senate because, well, because we have an evil and divided Senate, but because also the Democrats did not succeed in eliminating the filibuster, right? I don't know which Joe I want to blame. Uh, I don't necessarily, <laughs> I don't necessarily blame Joe Biden. I actually don't have <laughs> a huge problem with Biden's agenda, right? It's quite progressive. It actually does what people probably wanted it to do. The problem is, and y'all have heard me lament about cinema and mansion and they, they want to be principled and all that stuff. I have so many thoughts. I'm getting mad just thinking about it. But the reality is like, if you did what cinema and mansion did in the Republican Party while Trump was president, he iced you out immediately. You were a rhino. You weren't a real Republican. He made sure that the folks within his party were going to contribute to his success, even if it was failure for the rest of us. And right now, we can't get anything done because two senators 
Literally, because two senators are drawing this red line, even though Manchin said we're going to do everything to make Biden a successful president. Now they're doing everything to make sure that he's a one term president. What this does is just happen to my um, lifelong uh, belief that the government does nothing. I mean, the thing is, it could be Joe Biden. It could be the Democrats. Um, it could be the ridiculous cinema and mansion, but the reality is that there aren't enough people in Washington who care about what they're actually sworn in to do. They don't care about the American people. So the reality is frequently doesn't matter who's president because everybody in the Senate and and um, the House are fighting to keep their seats. No one is trying to govern. And so I'm not sure that Joe could have done anything but be elected. I don't trust them to be competent at all. Or do anything. I mean, well, ultimately, like, the, I think the frustrating thing for me is what Democrats knew at the beginning of this particular cycle of government, right? So when Joe Biden won in 2020, and then the Democrats took the Senate later on in 2021, once Warnock and Ossoff were elected to this U.S. Senate, like, what they knew is they had no more than one year to really do anything because ultimately mm-hmm. midterms were coming and they were likely going to lose control in one of the chambers of Congress. Instead of voting, starting with voting rights, mm-hmm. what they should have started with. Now, keep in mind, black people got you here. The only reason Warnock and Ossoff, yep. more so Warnock than Ossoff, are in office is because of black people, black women. Mm-hmm. They're the reason that you're in office. And instead of passing voting rights legislation immediately, you start with build back better and you ain't built shit. Yeah. But this is a crazy thing. And this is why the Republicans are much more strategic than the Democrats. Always. Because the Republicans did immediately start with voting. Yeah. Period. They knew that they didn't have the majorities to do it at the federal level. So they got together and said, we're going to do it at the state level because we've got the Supreme Court. Yep. Right. And when people take these cases before the Supreme Court, we can't guarantee that they're going to rule in our favor. But we stack that uh, institution in our favor. And so it's likely if we run it up that flagpole, it just might end in our favor. So so now you've got more than, I think, 16 states with legislation that's going to make it more difficult in the pandemic. What's crazy is Trump's um, homeland security said the last election was the most secure election in our history, right? Trump's home Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And so what justifies all of this legislation saying, oh, we can't do that driving vote no more. Oh, we can't do these mail-in ballots no more. We need election security. But it's the most secure, right? That's the strategy, to use a word from George Bush, of the Republicans. They started with voting. Brandon, to your point, like, I, I don't understand. Like, if, if you were Democrats, that's the first thing you come in and do. Well, I mean, we talked about this when we were talking about abortion rights, right? The Republicans and the conservatives have been working for 50 years. Like, they had a long-term plan. and. Democrats, and I, I know I fell into this category too, or let, let's just sit down and talk to one another and we're going to all get it right. That doesn't work. Nobody else is playing. They'll sit down at the table with you, but the people who aren't there have already blocked everything you've done. The Democrats aren't doing anything to help themselves. So the issue is, and we talked about Maya Angelou being on the quarter earlier, and the sad travesty is America can put Maya Angelou on a quarter but not take her words seriously. The most famous quote from Maya Angelou is, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. Republicans have been telling us who they are for for ages, for centuries, for decades, since the dawn of time, slash the American empire. 
And we're still acting as if we have people that are sitting across the table who are interested in a conversation and interested in a dialogue and working together. They have said our only goal is to obstruct. So why are you coming in with a strategy trying to act like Joe Biden, you can be a senator and negotiate things. You're the fucking president of the United States. That's not your function and it's not your role. Your role is to lead, not negotiate. Yep. So I think that's where the tension is for me. And I also think that the tension is between this sort of idea about political pragmatism versus political idealism. Barack Obama came in. He came in with the more, I think, Franklin Delano Roosevelt FDR style of government, which was actually about political pragmatism. What's politically expedient? What can we do most effectively? That's how we got health care. That's how we had action on housing. It was all about what was politically expedient. Whereas Lyndon B. Johnson came in with political ideals. It was about the great society, these ideas on which we should hang our policies. And ultimately, Lyndon B. Johnson's presidency led to the end of a political era, whereas Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency led to the beginning of a political era. And Joe Biden has just fumbled all along the way. He thinks that he's adopting an FDR strategy of political pragmatism, but really all he's given us is ideas without any action. American people don't want you to come and talk about, oh, we need to let people vote. We want you to do something about the fact that every single day, Republicans are working hard to make it difficult to vote for people who won't vote for them. We need you to do something about the fact that inflation is at all-time highs and the costs of goods and services are outpacing the earning potential that we have in this country. What are you doing about those things? Nothing. What strategies can you deploy? How how have we centered Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in all of our political debates? That's our president and vice president. Mm -hmm. It's not Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They're controlling everything. I'm thinking about this particular climate, right? Because I think that there's a feeling, there's this this thought that we can't afford to lose anybody, right? Like when when Trump was tearing through the Republican Party, calling everybody rhinos and all of this stuff, they they had a little buffer, right? They could lose two or three or four people and still get shit done. Right. But like I think there's a certain paralysis right now because it's like we got to have Joe Manchin. We got to have Christian Sinema. We can't afford to lose them. And I think it affects those who are the leaders in the party, their ability to kind of call them to task to get them straight. I think I think Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema, they know what they're holding. They know the cards that they're holding. And instead of saying, we're going to play, we're going to make this a team effort, they know what they're holding. And they're like, I got some power. You know, I got, I can do what I want. I, I can run this shit. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, it's unfortunate, but that's what white people have done since the dawn of time. Absolutely. And so to make this theological turn really quickly at the end of this word of pod for the people of pod, the question that came up for me is the tension between religious pragmatism and religious idealism. I'm not certain what our churches are doing. I don't know if churches and religious institutions are offering people religious social pragmatism in terms of here's how to live your life on a daily basis versus religious idealism. And I'm not sure which one is more powerful. I actually think that when you think about things religiously, the inverse is true. The most effective use of religion is to think about things from an ideal perspective. It's actually not about don't drink, don't smoke, don't have sex, don't be gay, don't be black, right? It's actually about, here's what Thich Nhat Hanh taught us about what it means to be human. Here's what the Buddha taught us about what it means to be holy, to be centered, to, to be grounded. Here's what Judaism, like, it's about the way that these religious systems of belief inspire us to live. So I think idealism is what we need religiously and politically we need pragmatism, but what we have is the inverse. That's all that I'm trying to say. So I think what we have is religious pragmatism where we need idealism and we have political idealism where 
where we need pragmatism is the point. We need our politicians to stop trying to be pastors and our pastors to stop being politicians. Not to say there's an easy sort of distinction between the two, but the roles have been reversed far too long is my point. That made me think about some uh, white friends, you know, pastors, these folks who was, who are really religiously idealistic. The problem with religious idealism is sometimes it ignores the reality of right. folks, just the reality. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I want to be an idealist. I want to kumbaya with you. And I'm like, get the fuck up out my face. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't like white people right now. I mean, I like white people, but there are some times that I don't. Right. I get it. I'm not sure I would have made the distinction between where politics should be and where the church should be, because I think they should both be involved in that practical stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it, the reality is that all these ideals that we hold true and whatever religious um, convictions we can hold, they compel us to do something. We have to be yeah. engaged in the world. It is not okay to say, well, God loves everybody, but not when institutions are continually uh, living into white supremacy and continue oppressing people. It doesn't matter if you say God loves everybody. That's true, but your actions betray your beliefs. So it, I think both of those are there. You need to know where the vision that you're going is, but good God, if you're not going to do something, then that's wrong. And so I'm not sure I would make a distinction between the church and state in that way, because I think it's required in both. What I would like is the government to actually do something. I'd like both of them to do something. (laughs) That's helpful. I think it's for the pushback, because I think I wasn't attempting to necessarily say there's a binary where religious leaders can only do this and politicians can only do that. that's, That's definitely what I said and how it came out. But I think what I'm trying to argue is at this particular juncture and at this particular moment, it seems like Joe Biden is using primarily an idealistic strategy Mm -hmm. without any pragmatic ways to get there. And he's played all these cards and played them poorly and ineffectively and it's gotten us nowhere based on an idea. Whereas I feel like a lot of religious leaders in this season, particularly the conservative white evangelicals, are offering people very pragmatic ways to engage their faith. And so maybe it's not even about politicians versus versus religious leaders. Maybe it is more a Democrat versus Republican strategy, whereas Democrats are stuck in the ideas. We're stuck on the idea that all people should be treated equally, the idea that the police should be defunded, the idea that we should have gender justice, all these ideas. And we argue at the idea level without ever enacting policy that gets us at least a little bit further. Whereas Republicans are like, it's all about pragmatics. White is right. Men are the center of the universe, right? And so I think you're both right. Whoa, shit, put that on a loop. There needs to be a balance of both ends, political pragmatism and idealism. They, they, they need to balance one another and you can't have one without the other and be effective. Neither can you do so in your church or any religious organization. If your congregation, your temple, your mosque is only talking about here are the ways you're supposed to be a faithful person, then you've lost the sort of beauty of the idea. And if you're only talking about the idea, then your faith isn't rooted in anything. So we've come once again to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and the Ain'ts. I hope that you've been picking up nuggets along the way and that you've already got ways that you can make these discussions actionable in your own life. But just in case you need a little bit of help, we always like to leave you with a way that you can practice what we've preached, hopefully in a way that leads to life and life more abundantly for you and those around you. Katie, 
what you got? Well, we started this episode talking about Sidney Poitier and, and King and how people were engaged in the civil rights movement and how, how it was different. And we talked about Andre Leon Talley, who entered the fashion world in a way where he was just himself and trying to navigate the world. We talked about the church and how you navigate this place between ideals and practical things that we can do in the world. And I think really there is this place in the midst of all of it, to sit in the tension of doing things and believing things. But even that doing thing looks different for each person or each group of people. So I think my invitation today is to sit in the midst of the doing and the believing and find out what is your way that you will engage in living out that which you believe. But you can't do that until you've sat in the midst of them and wrestled. That's good, Rich. I often think to myself that the third way is the most faithful way. Not the middle way, but the third way. If you're presented with a binary, either believe or do, oftentimes there's something that's in the middle of those two things that's the most faithful. It's the third path. And I think the third path that you've outlined is living. If you're so focused on making sure you're doing the right things, you're not actually living. All you're doing is becoming a robot and following a system. If you're so focused on believing the right thing, then you're stuck in your head all day, every day. But when you get into the living where there's life and there's joy and there's happiness and laughter and sometimes a little bit of alcohol to help you along the way, hallelujah for communion. That's what the most faithful thing is. When your ideas and your habits, your patterns, find some synergy into living life and life more abundantly, baby. That was good. Thanks. And 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 and, and you made it better. A little yeah. bit more what you wanted me yeah. to say. But <laughs> you know, you know always gonna make it sexy. But he was he was he was riffing <laughs> off you though. You gave him that. I no 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 no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Sam and I were in a directed study when we were both in graduate school, and there was a professor who is one of the most genius people. You know him, Katie. I'm just gonna call his name in case he's listening, just so you know that we love you, Dr. Ted Smith. Oh Uncle Ted, love him. Uncle Ted. I don't call white people white Uncle. People. Uncle. Theodore. I do not call white people Uncle. I don't know if his name is Theodore, but I just it is. Theodore Allen Smith. <laughs> is his middle name really Allen? I don't know. But I like the name Tedrick better than Theodore. Tedrick Smith. <laughs> I hope he's but, not listening. <laughs> I'm texting him telling he has a call out. If he is, he's laughing, I'm certain. <laughs> we were sitting in Tedrick's office for a directed, re, a directed study. Tedrick. Ted has a way of listening to what you say and then reflecting it back to you and making it sound so much smarter yes. and so much better. So much better. Yes, yes. And you sit there like, yeah, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. I, oh, are you sitting there like I said that shit? Okay. <laughs> that <was me. laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shoot, I will, I will claim it. Then. I ain't know I was uh, that's what. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so it's just not. It's not just me. I, okay, and then he'll it. affirm. Like he believes like, yeah. you said it. Like yeah, like you. That's brilliant. Shoot. <laughs> that brings us to the end of another episode of Holy Shit Pod. Thank you so much for listening. We do not take it for granted that you have a very intimate relationship with us because who else do you put in your ears for an hour a week? That's so weird. That's intimate. They're, we're in their ears. Like, what? I, I keep moving. Move on. <laughs> give them, give, tell them what to do, Katie. Tell them to rate us on Spotify. Now, if you like what you're hearing and you listen through Spotify, you can rate us there. And as Sam always says, five stars only. And let us know what you're thinking. We know some of y'all eat off this podcast every week. If you enjoyed the meal, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Media and leave a little love offering in the basket. You got to pay where you eat. Now, you don't go to McDonald's and get your food and not pay. So pay where you eat. Some of y'all listen to us every week and y'all ain't with the Patreon. 
What's up with that? That got a little violent. No, it's not violent because a black man is speaking. We'll be back <laughs> next week. Same time, same place. Until Ooh. then. Peace. You're both right. Whoa, shit. Put that on a loop. You're both right. You're both right. You're both right.